John Bunyan was a Baptist pastor in England during the difficult days of Charles II, and uh, that was a time in history when they used to call churches meeting houses, and because of Charles II, they closed them down, and the only services allowed were within the, the confines or the permission of the Anglican church. As, an, uh, as a result of his unwillingness to conform and uh, his persistence in preaching without a license, John ended up spending several years in, in the Bedford prison for what he called conscience' sake. In fact, at one point he was promised that he could be released if he would stop preaching, and his famous response was given, if you let me out today, I will be preaching tomorrow. God had a a plan for Bunyan's life and influence that uh, he probably would not have expected, for it would be while serving two different prison terms, he would write his classic work entitled, do you know it? Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have read that book? A wonderful book. If you haven't, add it to your reading list. His book opens, and let me read just a couple of opening paragraphs to whet your appetite if you haven't read it as an introduction. In my dream, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. He had the sack on his back representing sin. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled. And he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? In this plight, therefore, he went home and restrained himself as long as he could, that his wife and children should not perceive his distress. But he could not be silent long. Wherefore, at length, he revealed his mind to his wife and children, and thus he began to talk to them. O my dear wife, said he, and you, the children of my heart, I am in myself undone by reason of a burden that lieth heavily upon me. Moreover, I am certainly informed that our city will be burned with fire from heaven, in which both myself, with you, my wife, and you, my sweet children, shall miserably come to ruin, unless some way of escape can be found whereby we may be delivered. His family was amazed, not because they believed what he had said to them was true, but because they thought that some distemper had gotten into his head. As night was drawing near, they hoped that sleep might settle his brains, and with all haste got him to bed. When the morning came, he told them, I am worse and worse, and he set to talking to them again. But they began to be hardened. They also tried to drive away his thoughts by harsh and ugly treatment toward him. Sometimes they would deride him, sometimes they would chide him, and sometimes they would neglect him. He would walk alone in the fields, sometimes reading, sometimes praying, and thus for some days he spent his time. One day when he was walking in the fields, reading in his book, and greatly distressed in his mind, and as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, "'What shall I do to be saved?' I saw a man named Evangelist coming to him, and he asks, Why are you crying? He answered, Sir, I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment, and I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. Then said Evangelist, If this be thy condition, why stand still? He answered, Because I don't know where to go. Then said Evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see that gate? The man said, No. Do you see yonder shining light? And he said, I think I do. Then said Evangelist, keep that light in your eye and go up directly and you will see the gate and when you knock it shall be told thee what to do. 
So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door when his family began to shout for him to return. The neighbors also came out to see him run, and as he ran, some mocked, others threatened, and some cried after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran out crying, life, life, eternal life. And he kept running. John Bunyan goes on to describe two neighbors running after him to catch him and bring him back by force, but instead Christian which was the name of this pilgrim, told them, and I quote, You are dwelling in the city of destruction. Be content, good neighbors, and come along with me. Eventually following one adventure after another, Christian escapes the city of destruction and enters safely the celestial city of God by way of the cross where his burden falls off into the pit at the foot of the cross. A little wonder that this book was owned by nearly every home in England and America for more than 300 years. In fact, missionaries would often translate the Bible first and next, Pilgrim's Progress. This is the story of a man whose life and message announced coming judgment, as well as an invitation to join him and escape the wrath to come. Does that sound familiar? Where could you turn to find a review of that kind of story. Hebrews 11, what are you thinking? Hebrews 11, right? Turn there and look at verse 7. We happen to see something strikingly similar. In fact, as you're turning, you know, as I, I thought about this biography provided us here, I thought of Pilgrim, later Christian. He, Noah, effectively puts his fingers in his ears and ignores the culture of ridicule and mockery and rejection and sin and temptation around him to quit. And for more than 120 years, he builds this ark, as you know, and he tells the world, judgment is coming. Be content and come with me and be saved. It's his message. And I want to look at it. As we start, Or before we do, have you ever noticed how most often the heroes of the Bible are known for primarily one thing? Let me give you a pop quiz, and I'll show you what I mean. Uh, You fill in the blank. Abraham and Isaac. Let me start easier. Adam and... Oh, good. Okay, great. (laughs) Jonah and... Good. Daniel and Noah and the ark. Uh, Frankly, maybe at the end of our study we'll, we'll know him as Noah and his faith. He's the only hero listed in the biography of Scripture that begins and ends with a reference to his faith. So as we begin, I want to give you two principles that come directly from the life and testimony of Noah. First of all, Noah is going to demonstrate to us the principle that faith is personal profession in the midst of unbelief. Now, so often we rush kind of to the dramatic part of the story, and and, and, and oftentimes we think, yeah, we already knew it anyway. Well, let's slow it down a little bit and look at the setting here, because that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews gives to us. Look at verse 7 of chapter 11. He records, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not seen. Stop for a moment. 
one of those unseen things is this coming cataclysm, this coming judgment upon an incredibly wicked world. You study the times of Noah and discover that demon-possessed men have corrupted the godly line of Seth, I believe, with occult-driven, sexually-obsessed violence and wickedness. The heroes of Noah's generation are going to be admired because of their strength and their power and their viciousness and their wicked domination over others. In fact, the testimony of Noah's generation is given to us, and we'll turn there in a moment, but just by way of of introduction, here's what it says. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and look at how he covers every loophole, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. As if to say they never had a pure thought ever. Just how bad is it? Well, if you look at the analogy of Scripture and what it says about the days just before the the next judgment, which will be fire, not water, Peter tells us, there are these similarities. There's a preoccupation with temporary matters, Luke 17. There's a rapid advancement in technology, Genesis 4. Interests are bound up only in materialism, Luke 17. There's an inordinate devotion to pleasure and entertainment, Genesis 4.21. There's no concern for God in either belief or conduct, 2 Peter 2.5. There's a total disregard for the marriage covenant, Genesis 4.19. There's a rejection of the authority of God's Word, 1 Peter 3.19. There's a population explosion, Genesis 6.1. There's widespread violence, and the value of human life plunges. Genesis 4.23. Evil runs rampant. In the days of Noah leading up to the flood and the days leading up to that next cataclysm of fire, according to Old and New Testament analogies, Genesis 6.5. Immorality, vice, corruption become the norm. They become the normal patterns of human relationships. This is how life is. These are the days of Noah. Uh, More and more like our days, all the time. When even the most distorted sense of human relationship is applauded. You probably noticed in the newspapers and magazines that a new show has broken new ground. They call that broken new ground. At least that's that's how they describe it. It's a television series whose plot revolves around a homosexual couple who NBC advertises on his website. I went to see what they said about it as, quote, a committed, loving partnership that has everything but one thing, a baby. So the plot revolves around using a single mom as a surrogate mother so they can have their baby. And and the media world is all a flutter over this, all all filled with with, uh, approval and, and accolade and praise. I read one reporter saying, you know, predicting Emmys in the future by the truckload. It's no secret that our world is, is eager and ready to applaud anybody who breaks new ground. And all that means, it's tantamount to saying, breaks up ground established by our Creator God. 
Which makes it all the more remarkable when you think about the days of Noah. Because right in the middle of this kind of culture, this, this kind of evil, this kind of, of debauchery, is this incredible testimony. Moses records in the middle of Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9, Noah walked with God. He's the only hero, by the way, in all of Hebrews 11, where we're told he walked with God. In fact, we're told twice that Noah walked with God. Like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, later called Christian, he's, he's the only man willing to believe that sin is going to encounter the coming judgment of God unless you escape through the wicker gate and by way of the cross, which is a picture of the ark. What you have in, in the middle of the darkness of this culture is one shining, flickering candle. It's a man who, so to speak, has his fingers in his ears. See, faith is personal profession in the midst of unbelief. Noah's generation would have their list of heroes. Noah wouldn't be one of them. Men of renown, they're called in Genesis 6, verse 4. Men that would win the Emmys of his day. So early on, you discover in Noah that living faith is, is, is more interested in the approval of God than in the applause of mankind. You want to talk about a man walking to the beat of a different drummer, it is, it is this man. Noah is the man. Secondly, faith is personal piety in the midst of uncertainty. Now, in verse 7 of Hebrews 11, you'll notice... We're given Noah's response of faith. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. Now notice, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. He had every reason to believe others would come too. It ended up only being his own home. By or in reverence, prepared an ark. The word for reverence can be translated holy fear. This isn't a word that means that Noah was afraid of God. It means, as one author noted, that he had, this is a, the Puritans would love this word, he had sweet reverence for God. This is a word that refers to devotional awe of God. He had a reverent heart in a wicked world. That's what he had. And I want you to keep in mind that the staggering fact, the number of people who are following the standard of God, who are agreeing with the gospel by this prophet of God for relationships and marriage and morality and ethics and integrity has dwindled down to one family. Keep that in mind. Out of everybody, one family. One family will get on the ark. And the whole world is invited. Not like today. Frankly, in this, in this community, we're surrounded in our country by millions of believers who are following wholeheartedly God's design for marriage and morality and integrity and relationships and even brave enough to communicate the gospel of faith and truth and light and 
as it relates to sin and salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Not in this generation. Noah is about to begin 120 years of preaching and building, and not one family beyond his own immediate family is going to buy it. There's only one man available to hear from God. The writer of Hebrews informs us that Noah was indeed warned by God of things not yet seen, which means Noah bought it, he believed it, and acted upon it. Now once you start digging into the biography of Noah in the passages given to us, you discover that Noah was not only given the disclosure of God's judgment, he was given the details of God's judgment. In Genesis chapter 6, fills in the details, so let me invite you there for the remainder of our time. Genesis chapter 6, keep in mind that the Genesis chapter 6 represents 120 years. Okay, that's how long we've got in this one chapter. We won't take quite that long to get through it, but that's how long it represents. And the reason I've entitled this principle of faith, Piety in the Midst of Uncertainty, is simply because everything that God is about to command Noah to accomplish was entirely unknown to Noah. In other words, he's going to be asked to do things that he has absolutely no experience in doing. God is going to use a farmer to build the biggest boat known to mankind. More than likely, he has never built a boat before. He has certainly not built one this large. It's going to weigh over 18,000 tons and sit in his back pasture. Now, I want you to notice verse 13. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. That is the summary of lifestyle. The earth is filled with violence. Behold, I'm going to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, but cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, God provides the dimensions. Let's just skip past that for a moment and look at verse 17. Behold, I am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Now, based on a face value understanding of God's instructions to Noah here, the flood is going to cover the entire earth and kill everything that breathes which, of course, among other things, lets us know that marine life will survive outside the ark. According to these dimensions, the ark is going to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and four stories high. That's a big canoe. Now, since this is football season, in fact, how many of you guys pulled yourself away from the television to come to church tonight? Let me see your hand. I think that is outstanding. That's wonderful. All three of you. That's great. We're glad you're here. And I hope your team wins. So let me think in terms of a football game with you. Think in terms of this. This arc will be nearly two football fields long, nearly one football field wide, and it'll reach up to the nosebleed section. Four stories up. The total deck would be about 96,000 square feet. And the volume, total volume, with there are actually three decks built in the inside of this ark, 
there would be 1.3 million cubic feet. Uh, and naval engineers have, have studied this design and believe it to be one of the most stable floating devices known to man. Now, now keep in mind, this doesn't look like the Queen Mary or um, you know, some freighter or some Titanic-type boat. It's actually more a flat-bottomed barge. It was not designed to move through the water. It was simply designed to float on top of it. I brought a picture along for you, one artist's sketch based on the blueprints we have in Genesis chapter 6. And that gives you a good idea. This is a gigantic barge with thousands of built-in compartments sufficient to carry two of every species of air-breathing animal in, in the world. In fact, uh, based on measurements given in the number of land species cataloged today, half the deck space would not even have been needed, which means that there was room in the ark for thousands of people. People that I'm sure Noah fully expected to come on board and join him as they escape the city of destruction and the coming wrath of God. One more comment on the design specs of this barge. You find nowhere in scripture a reference to oars, sails, an anchor, a captain's wheel, or even a rudder. God will be in charge of all of that. God will do the driving, so to speak. He will be the captain of the vessel, just as he captains the vessel of our salvation today. We're not, by our own ingenuity, steering our way in. We're in Christ, the ark. It is God's design, and we're safe. God's going to be in charge of all this. Now, there are a number of objections I've cataloged a few of them. Some would suggest that since there are more than a million insect species, you know, what about them? Well, if they came on board, they would have plenty of room in these compartments, given the small spaces they would have required. However, in chapter 7, we're told that the animals on board were land animals who breed through nasal passages. Several creationists have pointed out that insects do not breathe through nostrils but through tiny pores or trachea in their exterior skeleton they would have been able to survive on mats of vegetation trees debris just as they have been seen to do or survive during times of modern flooding suppose that you could get all 35,000 air breathing animal species on board in pairs now you're talking about 70 thousand animals. How in the world do you take care of 70,000 animals for one year? Which is exactly how long Noah and his family are going to float in this barge. Well, the key word appears in Genesis 6 at verse 14, where he's told or we're informed that each deck is going to be subdivided into rooms. In the Hebrew language, you could translate that compartment. You could even, as one Hebrew scholar translated it, you could translate it nests. In other words, Noah made nests throughout the ark for the animals. Now, while we're not told what happened during this year-long cruise, it isn't too hard to imagine that, that God, as one author suggested, supernaturally imposed on these animals a year-long 
hibernation. That would answer a lot of questions, wouldn't it? It seems more than likely that Noah and his family would not have been able to feed 70,000 animals once or twice a day, much less keep that elephant from stampeding at the sight of that mouse or whatever. It seems likely to me that God may very well have put them into a restful sleep so that they would not have been traumatized by the chaos and the upheaval that carried this ark as the, as the earth opened and torrents of water surged upward. Now, by the way, is that a stretch of our imagination? We read the Bible and you discover that, that God has done a lot of different things with animals against their instincts, imposing upon them his purpose and divine will. He supernaturally shut the mouths of lions that would instinctively had a prophet for dinner, right? Daniel chapter 6. He commanded birds to go against their instinct and not swallow that bread, but deliver it to Elijah, 1 Kings 17. He commissioned, literally, he appointed a whale to go swallow another prophet and then three days later lose his appetite, spit him back out, right? He had one fish keep a coin in its mouth so that Peter could catch it and with that coin go pay his taxes, which makes me want to go fishing whenever time I read that story, Matthew 17. God even changed the mental and vocal capacities of a donkey, allowing it to carry on a conversation with a rather slow prophet. Numbers 22. If God can cause animals to deliver food and carry on a conversation and swallow a prophet and and not eat a prophet, could he cause animals to sleep? There's another piece of evidence that animals were acting somewhat differently during this year on board. It would be only after the animals that left the ark that God would command the animals to breed and multiply. Chapter 8 and verse 17. We have every indication that they entered in pairs and they left. How? In pairs. There weren't 300 rabbits coming down that gangplank at the end of a year. In other words, God... At that point when they left, removed that supernatural restriction over their normal instincts, which would have caused these animals to mate and multiply if they had been awake and normally functioning during this year-long stay. One commentator pointed out that although Noah was told, you might notice in chapter 6 and verse 21, to bring in food for all the animals, that food may very well have been enough For one meal at the end of the journey to give these animals one good meal as they awakened and departed to find their way down the mountain. Here's what we do know and we can observe. God definitely altered the normal patterns of thousands of animals so they did what? They left their natural habitat and they did something against their natural instincts. And they come walking in pairs eventually walking toward this huge, imposing building with people around it, and they walk up the gangplank in pairs and obey orders, no doubt divinely directed, to go to their nest among thousands of others. How does that happen? 
I mean, something had to happen to get these animals to cooperate. I can't get my one dog to sit and to stay. She, she does not listen to me. And she knows me. I think she knows me. In fact, the only way I can get her in the backyard sometimes, back in the pen, is to bribe her with a piece of cheese. That's the kind of control I've got over the dog I own. God is obviously doing some rather miraculous things here to not only make these animals arrive, but to behave around people they don't know. Have you ever taken your dog or, or cat to the vet? I mean, how do they act? You're taking your dog there to get fixed and your cat to put to sleep. And how do they act when they see these other animals? I don't know about you, but, but my dog, I mean, just, just gets all nervous. The last thing I could ever do is put her down and expect her to cooperate with even the other animals. Are you kidding? You got 70,000 animals arriving. I mean, we're not even to the miracle yet. And this is enough to cause us to take note. They're walking up this ramp two by two. It's funny, I read an illustration of this very issue recently. A film producer in Italy was attempting to depict the story of the animals and the ark. And a lot of time and effort was expended in training just a few zoo animals to walk two by two up a ramp into a model of the ark. And when the time came for filming, a water buffalo got spooked charged up the gangway, crashed through the set, and ran away. They never caught him. That's what animals do. That's what they do. We have this field out in our backyard, and they uh, keep heifers, and, and uh, there's a bull and about, about 15 heifers. And they calve. They have the cutest calves. And there's one mother, one heifer with her calf, newly born, out by the fence yesterday. And so I walked out there just talking, you know, and immediately, as soon as I stepped up in the natural area, that mother, she began to walk away and she had her body between me and her little calf. And I was nice and kind. She, she wasn't paying me any attention. I thought it was Sunday morning all over again. Just walked away. I, I, how, how in the world am I going to control? How is Noah? Don't assume, don't assume, for instance, that he's thinking as God gives him the details. This is no problem. What experience does he have with elephants? God is asking Noah to believe and obey in spite of a thousand obstacles that he would have had. No doubt. He is inundated with his own thoughts of inabilities and inexperiences that must have flooded his mind. The remarkable principle of faith operated not only in his heart, but it controlled his life. He's he's going to do this. Faith is personal profession in the midst of unbelief. Faith is personal piety, reverential awe in the midst of uncertainty. And so he's going to press on. Now, let me address a couple of other objections about the flood that that came. You'll notice in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 17, we're we're told that the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark 
so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, that is, than the mountaintop. That's so the ark wouldn't get stuck. It could keep floating. And the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. How clear is that? I'm amazed that even as clear as this language is, there are many, even within the church, who believe that we've got a little local flood taking place and not a global flood. There are many people, even in the church, that take the story of Noah, and because we can't understand everything, and I've pointed out just a few things about animals that we certainly can't understand taking place, that, that this is just some kind of folk tale that God gave to Moses to tell the people to encourage them. The trouble with any view that discounts the historicity and authenticity of this account in the Bible has to ignore other passages of the Bible. For instance, Isaiah the prophet refers to a global flood in chapter 54. Ezekiel mentions Noah specifically and calls him a godly man two times. So he isn't a figment of some historical imagination. Luke includes Noah in the official genealogy of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter uses the events of Noah and this global flood as an illustration of a coming global firestorm. Just as the flood was global, so this firestorm that's coming is going to be global too. That's some little local fire. Jesus Christ himself even used the flood in Matthew 24 as a reference to his global judgment that is yet to come when he returns to earth. So you'd have to ignore other passages of Scripture. God has left, and for those in that world, and I appreciate being able to read their writings, God has left a wonderful fossil record revealing that even on high mountains of today there are fossils of sea creatures. One creationist geologist noted that even at the uppermost parts of Mount Everest, there are fossil layers that have been deposited by water. Many believing scientists are taking a closer look at the implications of passages like Psalm 104 that indicate that after the flood, God raised the mountains higher than they were and sank the valleys between them. And I would agree with the Hebrew language that speaks of the sudden intervention by God that changes the topography of the earth as he pushes mountain ranges up. It's an interesting text to restudy. We have enough record from volcanic eruptions and modern-day flooding to, to see the power of water and the power of natural forces to erode and carve out Formations of rock. I read of one flood where floodwaters and waves tossed 7,000-pound boulders over a breakwater wall, moving 65,000-ton cement blocks nearly a football field. Just water in a flood. That's a little flood, a local flood. One local flood near Los Angeles eroded 
they were able to estimate it eroded and redeposited 100,000 cubic yards of earth. Just the eruption of Mount St. Helens should be causing evolutionists to do a lot of rethinking. In fact, it's been fascinating to read a lot of the material, which I'm not even going to be able to bring, but to read about it sometime, how it just swept, that eruption just swept forests away, just cleared them off and redeposited huge trees root down into the basin of a, of a lake nearby. It looked like they had grown there. They were deposited there by force and water and pressure. Not only changed earth, this flood, but it aged earth. What looks like it would have taken millions of years to carve out happened in one year. The Grand Canyon, by the way, for instance, didn't need millions of years of erosion by the Colorado River. It only needed the handiwork of a global upheaval as God erupted the fountains of the deep and covered the earth with swirling water and rock carving away for more than a year. Looked old, but it just took a year. We've done that with this building, by the way. If you go out and you look at this building, you'll think, you know what? This building's been around a long time. Now, we did that on purpose just because of the colonial architecture. It, it looks old, even though it's new. And you do that by tumbling brick. They put brick, oversized brick, in, in a barrel, and they literally tumble it. And so it, 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 it knocks against each other, and it scars, and it, it, it makes jagged edges. And no brick is uniform. It all looks different. You put it up, and you think, you know, this building... This has been around for 50, 60, 80, 100 years. No, this one's been up about five years. It looks old because it's been tumbled. Same concept here. Same idea. By the way, it's not unusual to find even unbelieving scientists and geologists and evolutionists now explaining things they're discovering in terms of some kind of outside the uniformity of nature, some kind of cataclysm some kind of intervention, some kind of catastrophe. I remember when our sons were in second grade before they were homeschooled for a number of years, we had them in a magnet school nearby, and one day they had a local professor come from the university to present. He had, he had fossils and some dinosaur bones, and he was going to discuss the world of millions of years ago. And I decided, without my sons knowing who were in, I think it was first grade, maybe second, without them knowing that I was just going to go and I'd stand in the back. And they had this auditorium slash cafeteria, and nobody even noticed me. I was just standing near the back. as this. I wanted to be able to talk to my boys afterward about this evolutionary presentation. So as I stood in the back, and, and the professor neared the end of his presentation, quite fascinating with these bones and fossils, he, uh, he made the comment that the disappearance of dinosaurs has always been something of a mystery and other things, that there may have been some kind of disaster on the planet. And to my amazement, I saw my, one of my sons raise his hand. And I thought, oh my goodness, what's he raising his hand for? You know, is he going over to the dark side? <laughs> or what? Son, what are you going to say in front of 300 kids? The professor noticed his hand and said, yes, sir. And my son said, 
it was the flood. <laughs> yes. That was outstanding. He's my favorite child ever since that happened. <laughs> but didn't dinosaurs, you know, didn't they live 65 million years ago? That's what our children are being taught. Well, we've discovered enough that they really ought to be rewriting that. So much of it. In fact, I'll read one and then we've got to quit. I'm sorry, we're over time. But there's one account. This isn't going to be in your child science book. It clearly indicates things aren't as old as they're being told. Almost 20 years ago now, scientists from the University of Montana found T-Rex bones. Now, of course, if these bones are millions of years old, they wouldn't have any blood cells within them. They would have disintegrated. A report by one of those scientists recorded, and I quote, The lab was filled with murmurs of excitement. For I had focused on something inside the vessels that none of us had ever noticed before. Tiny round objects, translucent red with a dark center. They were indeed fragments of red blood cells. Blood cells are mostly water, would not have possibly stayed preserved in a 65 million year old Tyrannosaur. Now, Nothing more was said about that find and many others. The implications are simply too enormous to consider. In our next session, we're going to have to watch Noah's perseverance in the midst of mockery. And finally, and I want to deal with this, and in fact, that's why this sermon turned into two, I want to deal with Noah's faith in the midst of silence. We often overlook the silence of God. Well, what I want to walk away with today are two lessons from the life of Noah, very quickly. Number one, faith is obedience despite the presence of obstacles. Can you imagine a thousand obstacles that would come to Noah's mind? Faith is obedience despite the presence of obstacles. Number two, faith is obedience despite a lack of experience. God did not choose Noah because Noah knew how to build boats and handle elephants. The only qualification Noah possessed was that Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God, and God would prepare Noah for everything else. Amen? God bless you. You are dismissed.